0: good. All right, I need to get into this uh, message for today. We are talking about life. And over this series, we're talking to you about the life that we have in Jesus. Our vision as a church, our mission is to inspire people to live. And we took that from John 10 verse 10, where Jesus says that He's come to give us real and everlasting life, more and better life. And that's what we want to inspire people towards. But it's important to know what this life is that Jesus is inspiring us to. And so we've been talking about that over the last few weeks. And I think that there's still so much that we need to cover. So this might spread beyond February uh, so that we can cover this well because this is what our church is actually gearing and focusing and directing itself on. And today, a huge part of life is that life is relational. Life is relational. We need to understand that Christ has called us to a Christ-centered community. I'm going to show this to you. I'm going to prove this to you through Scripture, which is very important. I'm not just saying this. Uh, and then from there, I want to go into something quite practical because I, I, I've been uh, re- reading about this, researching this topic, and I think that's something that God wants to help us in order that we can live fully uh, in Christ-centered community. Now, Jesus in John 13, 14, and 15, He has this massive long speech. I think it might even be longer than that. And it basically is kind of like his last address to his disciples. He had gathered his disciples together. He was gearing up. He was getting ready to be crucified. He knew that his time on earth was about done. And so John records this really long conversation, discussion, teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples. And in John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus says, "'A new command I give you, love one another.'" as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. He says love one another three times in just a couple of verses. And we quite often, as Christians, we know that we're meant to love people. Jesus talks about loving people all the time. He says, love your enemies. You know, He says to, to love uh, and the, the children, the sick, the poor, the widows. He, he says to love everyone. But in this passage, remember what I just said, Jesus had gathered His 12 disciples. He was having an intimate conversation with them, and He was eyeballing them, these specific people, and He said to them, love one another he was always teaching us to love one another but in this context he's saying to love the disciples by this the world will know that you are my disciples when there is this unity when there is this love that we have for one another we need to be very careful with this, because the church is is marked by a love for the community, but it's hallmarked, it's exclamation marked when a church is living in unity. There is no point loving the community, and then the community go, oh, you guys are quite special, and they come along to a church gathering, and they go, there's nothing different here. The way you treat each other is shocking. The way you love one another tells me that you're just doing good deeds for the sake of doing good deeds. There is nothing different within the community. We need to be marked by a love for our community. We need to go to Curtin. We need to go to China. Maybe not we specifically. Matt can go to China. (laughs) Not Not this week. Not for a little while. But we also need to, when we gather, have something different in here. Because by this shall all men know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. When someone says, when a Christian, a Christ-believing person says, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, there is something wrong there. Because Jesus refers to the church as his bride. How can we say that I love Jesus, but hate his bride? If you came up to me and said, I like you, Nate, but I hate Beck. I'd say, you have no part with me. That is something that we need to understand, that the bride is as important as the groom. And when we love one another, it is so important. Now, Jesus continues on in John 15, 9 to 13. In this same speech, He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Jesus doesn't tell us to uh, follow His commandments just because He is this dictator. Jesus tells us this because He's showing us a pattern for life that brings about a fullness of joy. Right. You need to remember this. When we, when, sometimes when we see commands, we're like, oh, someone's telling me what to do. I'm going to do the opposite. Yes, you can do the opposite, but you will also be removed from joy. Yeah. Right? Does this make sense? We need to be careful about this because me following Jesus is for my benefit. Me listening to Jesus and the principles in the Word of God as difficult and as unwrappable our minds might be, you know, just difficult (laughs) to understand. It still is the path to joy. And then he goes on and he says, my command is this, just in case you don't know what I'm talking about, making it extremely clear. You 12, listen to this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one in this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus was talking to His disciples, saying you love one another, and this is the kind of love you need to have for one another. Die for one another. You know, sometimes we talk about dying for others and the community at large, and Yes, some people have been called to to amazing, self-sacrificial lives like that. But are you willing to do it for your fellow disciple? When Jesus was giving these commands to His disciples, in effect, He was giving it to us as His disciples. How are you going loving one another in Christ-centered community? Now, to give you more proof, if you need more proof, even though Jesus had said it so many times, love one another, new command, love one another, love one another, love one another, when... The church was birthed in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit came. And I think we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about how life is Spirit-filled. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. I think that's going to be awesome. Uh, but when the Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, the church was birthed. And this is how the church looked like. And I believe that that's the kind of Christ-centered community that Jesus is talking about. This is what they did in Acts 2:42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled at awe, the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, the great things of God, but then they also, all the believers were together and had everything in common. There's a spiritual, but there's this physical, emotional, relational aspect. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God enjoying, and enjoying the favor of all the people. And and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They had this big thing. They, they went to the synagogues. They went to the temple. They praised God. They saw signs and wonders. And they had meals together. They listened to the teaching. They grew in their spiritual faith. And they had fellowship. And they gave. And they shared with uh-huh. one another. I, when I'm reading this and I look at the modern day church in general, I sometimes wonder whether we have lost the plot. Do we love one another the way that Christ has called us to? Because the picture of it is given to us in Acts chapter 2. Now, the early church, as it grew and it became more complex, it was only a few chapters later that they started complaining about unfairness and all that kind of stuff. You can read about it when, the, when they were talking about the distribution of the bread in a few chapters. So it does tell us that this is not easy. We are meant to love one another, we are meant to help one another, and when the Spirit comes it enables us to do that, but life happens. Community is difficult because community includes human interaction. Oh my gosh, I love people and I hate people. Same thing, when you want to be in community, one another is amazing and it's terrible, This week, we hear great reports of amazing things that are happening, and in the very same week, we hear about people that are being in absolute pain in their foot. (laughs) And we need to be able to still love one another. I hear that camera. (laughs) Now, just to be sure that you get that we are meant to live in Christ-centered community, Paul writes to the church in Galatia the church, not just the Galatians in general, but to the church in Galatia, and He instructs them in Galatians 6 verse 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. You know, sometimes it's so easy to say, I love God, I serve God, when the fact is that God doesn't really need us. He doesn't need your money, he doesn't need your encouragement, he doesn't need your praise, he doesn't need your worship to be God, he is God. The way to fulfill the law of Christ, loving God, yes that's important, but is more actualized when we actually love one another. How amazing, how simple, but how difficult. How difficult. And that's why Jesus, in the, in the Gospels, when you see His teaching, a lot of them are to do with living with people. It's about justice. It's about mercy. It's about dealing with conflict. It really is. You cannot live out the law of Christ when you're isolated. You cannot live out the instructions of Christ when you don't live in the church community. That is the simple point of the Bible. In fact, when the theologians have been talking about this uh, aspect of our Christian faith and one was so moved by this idea of the church community that he, he titled his systematic theology book. Now, a systematic theology book is basically where a theologian takes all the central, essential topics about God Talks about the Trinity. Talks about miracles. Talks about uh, uh, who Jesus is. Talks about the Holy Spirit. Talks about salvation. Talks about sin, and and, and so uh, I, like I've got a couple of systematic theology books. One of them is literally titled Systematic Theology because it's a textbook. They don't get really creative, but one theologian that wrote a systematic theology book, which is being used as a textbook in our local colleges, by the way, it's titled Created for Community. When you look at that book, you don't think that's a systematic theology book. It says connecting Christian belief with Christian living, but that is one of the premier top systematic theology books. Why? Because the whole point of understanding God is understanding how to live with people. We have got to catch this. When we talk about second parenting as discipleship, this is not just a fancy new idea. This is about us trying to drill deep into understanding how to live as Christians. And that is what we're trying to do. Come this afternoon, it's going to be great. But this morning, I want to talk to you about how to do this and in particular, one particular passage um, that Jesus talks about how to live in community. Because as I've said, we understand this, but actually doing it is a lot harder, yeah? Yeah, yeah. It's easy to love someone that is lovable. It's difficult to love someone who is being an absolute maggot. It's, I'm trying to find the right words. Because loving people is great, amazing, the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. Loving people is also the most difficult thing that will drive me to insanity. It's the same thing. Most of the world, all these helping professions, there are amazing people that are moved, that, are, that they find meaning and purpose in helping others, but they're the ones that are also dropping off, getting burnt out. Why? Because helping people is difficult. Living with people is difficult. It's complex, and is not straightforward, and so Jesus teaches us about this. I'm going to go into one particular passage, and I'm going to unpack it with you. In Matthew 7, 1 to 6, Jesus says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Interesting last part for that. I just thought I'd throw that in there. That's in the Bible. Jesus said that. But it starts off, this passage that I'm using this morning, by saying, do not judge. And quite often in in, in our culture, in our world, we hear people say, don't judge me, you're not allowed to judge me. And people say that, uh, and specifically mean that Christians are not allowed to tell other people what is sinful and what is not. What is right and wrong, we're not allowed to judge other people. Now, that's the wrong context. Because Jesus tells us many times to use discernment to know what is right from wrong, right? And so that is judgment there. There is nothing against Scripture. When you are understanding when something is sinful and when something is good, we have to understand that that is not the context. The context is in relationship. Because Jesus then goes on to say, uh, talk about the speck of sawdust and talk about the plank. Now, understand that in this passage, Jesus says that you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's not saying that you're not allowed to take the speck out of someone else's eye. It's saying that you do it in a way that is not stupid. Let me, I've got these. I'm just going to use one plank at this point because I've only got one hand. Imagine this is a plank, right? And let's say it's in my eye and I'm trying to help someone else out. Let me get that speck, let me get that speck let let me get that speck let why are you why are you being so difficult when we oh when we don't remove the plank from our eye we actually can't get close to people that's actually what is happening now i used to think about it this way but i'm like this is a lot more fun <laughs> i get to poke someone else's eye out and so when we don't remove the plank from our eye how can we actually get close to people? We are actually literally using these planks, holding people away from us. And this morning I want to talk to you about three planks that I have discovered, primarily from my life. Psychology has helped me to uncover these things. These three planks are also known as cognitive errors. It's in our thinking, it's in our way of perceiving these perceptions are our judgments of other people so you will see this as i talk to you about this and these cognitive errors are social cognitive errors to do with relating there are many of them i want to bring three up this morning because these three i thought were like wow they really explain so many planks in my life and i'm hoping that it helps you too the first plank is this the illusion of transparency Say it with me, the illusion of transparency. The illusion of transparency is this, that another person can look at you and completely understand and see every part of you. That's basically it. We think we are transparent. So for example, a very simple example, I train quite a number of people up in in, in public speaking and one of the top things that people ask me is how do you not look nervous? How do you not look nervous? You know, the moment I step up on stage, I'm feeling the sweat on my brow, my hands are shaky, I'm feeling these butterflies churning in my stomach, and I just feel nauseous, and like, how do you not look nervous? And I'm like, no one knows. No one has a microscope to the pores on your forehead trying to work out how much sweat is coming out. No one has put a tremor graph onto your head, I don't know, what's it called? The thing that measures tremors to work out how many tremors you had while you were speaking. Most people don't know. No one is looking to count the number of butterflies in your stomach. But we think everyone can see that. We think that when we stand up here, everyone looks into my soul and they know what a terrible person I am, and I've no right to say what I'm saying. And we make these judgments because we think people can see everything about us. How does it affect us in relationship? I've got a story for you. Last year, Beck and I were at Leavers with the Red Frogs team. We were there as a chaplain to the froggers. We were there to help Uh, the froggers ensure that they survive a very tense week, a very difficult week. And um, a couple of the froggers who have They're veteran froggers. They're amazing froggers. They've been doing it for years. They they, they know what they're doing. But they came to us and they said, the leadership doesn't care for us. I was like, why? Why why do you say that? What's going on? Well, they've not asked me how I'm doing. They've not given me debriefs. They've not taken me out for a coffee. They're not supporting me even though I'm having a terrible week. And the thing is, these two were the kind of froggers that would actually go and seek out people that are struggling. They're they the type of people that like, I think so-and-so is struggling. Let's go get that person and go grab a coffee and let's go help them out. They would do that for other people, right? And so they had this assumption that the leadership, if they cared, would do the same for them. They projected that kind of expectation onto the leadership. And so it was like, oh, they, they, they don't care. And so we asked them, did you tell anyone about this? No. Did you tell any of the leaders that you're struggling? No, not, not, not really, not in those words. And so, But you think that they should know that you're struggling? Yeah, yeah, they should know. They should know that I'm struggling. They should know that I'm not doing well. They should know that I'm tired. They should know that I'm, I'm under a lot of strain. And so, but, but you guys just took extra shifts last night, telling everyone that you were fine. So how are they supposed to? Well, they're, supposed, they're supposed to know. How many people do you know that think that everyone else is supposed to see every struggle and deficiency and then say, "If you saw my pain and you didn't do anything about it, you don't care." The illusion of transparency shuts relationship down because you think and you expect others to act when they don't have the information to act. If you need help. You ask for help. I go see a psychologist once a month, once every six weeks. Why? Because I need help. Sometimes life is difficult. Sometimes there are things I need to talk. I say, I'm struggling. I have really had to learn how to do this. I learned that I subscribe to the illusion of transparency because it's easier for someone else to initiate and offer their care than for me to say, I'm actually not doing well. It's so much easier if for me just to try to look as gloomy as possible and beg to say, oh, what's happening, dear, than for me to go up to back and say, I'm feeling really weak right now. We all want that they're there, but none of us want to go, I'm not, not okay, that's why our culture has picked up on this and said we need to create Are You Okay Day because everyone's operating under the illusion of transparency and everyone's like, I'm doing okay, I've got a smile on my face. It's like, stop it. Be real. Be open. James tells us in his epistle to share your sins with one another, to confess. What is this sins? It's your struggles. It is the most vulnerable part of you. You need to share it. You know, Beck and I have this rule in our family, that if you have a need, you say it. I'm not going to guess it. Like, I've got three years of studying psychology. I've got another two years on top of that of studying counselling. I'm supposed to have built some kind of radar to understand people. Beck is the worst. I can't tell when she's doing okay or not. I don't know what she needs. And we've been married for seven years dated for two years on top of that we know each other but i don't know when she's struggling yeah. and if she doesn't tell me that she has a need i don't know and i just operate Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god and then i get this like you don't know i kind of don't know becca's never done that i just thought it'd be fun to pretend that she's an evil monster but she's really the best but we actually have this pact We have this thing, we we call it size. You know that person's like, "Ah." (laughs) "Ah." (laughs) Oh, what's wrong? Ah." (laughs) You don't spit it out, I'm moving on. I'm moving on. (laughs) A plank that we have is the illusion of transparency. You can see me, you can know me, and if you love me enough, you will ask about me. Stop it. We need to be open enough to say, I'm struggling and I'm in need, right? The second plank is this, the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error states that we are more likely to attribute our difficulties and shortcomings to an external source, but then we are likely to attribute someone else's actions to an internal personality issue, okay? So let's say you are driving and you see someone else cut you off and driving like a lunatic, you will say, "Oh, that person's a lunatic." right? But when you're the lunatic, driving like a Drongo, you say, like, "Oh, I'm in an emergency. I'm late to something." Yeah. Confess your sins right now. Be turn around and be saved. The fundamental attribution error. It's so easy. So easy to do this. Let me give you an example. I was helping a couple of people who have been fighting, they have been at odds. They thought that each other hates each other for about five, six years now. And and they just haven't been communicating, haven't been talking. And, and and so I was talking to one of them and said, I really want reconciliation, but I don't think the other person wants this. I said, Why not? So well, we were at this event together, right? And I was approaching her and she turned her back on me. So I just know. I no, she doesn't want to reconcile with me. I was like, oh, that, that sounds pretty bad. So I went to this other person and said, hey, this is, what." up? said, what? I didn't even see him at the event. In fact some of the friends told me he was going to be there. I was actually looking for him. When did he say I turned my back? Oh, that day. That day, I was talking to another friend who was in a very difficult situation, and I turned my back to everyone to give this person privacy. Fundamental attribution error. Who was right and who was wrong? Why do we build up these pictures and these movies, these truths about the other person? Hang on, judgments about the other person in our mind. When we judge other people according to the illusion of transparency or the fundamental attribution error, it puts a plank between me and the other person. And so these two, when, when we actually brought the truth up, they were like, oh, I think now, I still haven't quite found out, but I think that they are actually working things out together. When they realise that their judgments, the perceptions have been stopping them and they change, it changes the whole situation. And I'm going to go really quickly on to the final one, because um, the second plank and the third plank work together perfectly. The third plank is this, it's called the confirmation bias. The confirmation bias is this, that when we have come up with a theory about something, we will look for evidence to confirm it. Very simple. Um, We will always work to confirm our suspicions rather than to disconfirm, to discredit our suspicions. So when you have a suspicion about someone else, you will find ways to confirm it. I'm going to give you quite a uh, personal account, but I thought that there was this person in my life that actively, actively, that's what I really thought, actively was in opposition to me. I thought that this person literally hated me and was looking for ways to tear me down. So, obviously, it got me quite upset. And, um, and I actually went to my counsellor about this, my, my psych, and I was sharing the situation and... and Look, I, I'm a really, if I became a lawyer, I would be the best lawyer. I had all my points. i say, and this person did this, and this person that that. And i said, can't you see how much this person is opposing me? He would interrupt me all the time. He would do this, he would do that. He would actively push me into a corner. And my psychologist has asked me this. She, she asked me, she said, so, so what happens now when you meet up with a guy? Or if you notice a social situation where he's going to be there? So well... I don't want him to hurt me, so I'm guarded. I kind of sit back and I kind of see what kind of mood he's in, try to work it out before there's any other interaction. So, okay, so how do you think he perceives that? Is that? Probably that I'm being defensive at the least. I don't know where you're going with this. It's not, no. 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 It's not my fault. <laughs> See, I started to realize that I was defensive. Wow. I had a plank in my eye. So when this person came into the room, I was like, <sniffs> hit him with my plank. No. Yeah. <laughs> and so what did he do? He got defensive. He was defensive, I was defensive, and we were interacting with each other like we were both oppositional. Who was at fault? Possibly both of us. Yeah. What can I control? me. But I had all those evidence. Yeah, but I wasn't listening to the other evidence either. I wasn't listening to other attributions that I could have made to his behaviors and his choices. I wasn't listening to any of those things because I confirmed my bias. You see, Christian, Christ loves you. He does, but the plank in the eye has to go because the plank is stopping us from being in community. And this is the kind of community that Christ has for us. Ephesians 4, 14 to 16. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. God wants you to grow, and therefore He's put you in the body. God wants you to grow. And therefore, He has put you in the body. When every part of the body is together in harmony, we support and we build each other yeah. up in love. Yeah. The thing that stops us is when we walk around with our planks and therefore start to distance ourselves. And when you are, when you've got that, you can't be in the part that you're meant to be in. Yeah. And this is the realization that I made. When you are the one who has distanced yourself from the body, you don't get the benefits of the body. Yeah. The body is amazing and compensates for the loss of you. Yes. Think about this. When, when I lose a finger in my hurt, it might be difficult, but my body will compensate. Yeah. Is it better if I still have my finger so freaking ludely? We want you as part of the body because when every part is together, we mature and we grow together. But when you got your plank, you're being difficult. You're being ridiculous. You know, when I'm talking about that situation, when I discovered how oppositional I was to this other fella, I recognized that I put myself out of any social situation he was in. He was there and he was in every time he laughed at someone's joke, I was being stabbed in the heart. I was like, what is going on? Like, look at look at the way he's laughing. Look at the way that he's enjoying the benefits. And I'm like, oh my. And then when I realized you're the one that put yourself out there. Yes, come on. Maybe you're in a doghouse because you put yourself in a doghouse. Maybe you're not experiencing the benefits of community because you're allowing the illusion of transparency, allowing the fundamental attribution error, or allowing confirmation bias to hold you out. I have been there. We're coming up with something called second parenting because we want to get rid of people's excuses to allow planks to be in their eyes. We want to bring people closer together in intimacy. Community and Christ centered family is not always easy. Why? Because it means that you literally are looking someone in the eye and going, I see a speck. Let me deal with that with you. Someone's still poking your eye, man. It's not fun sometimes to be, and Beck does this a lot to me. It's like, get rid of that speck. There's a but I know that it's so good for me. I know it's so good for me. I know that that's how I'm going to grow. I know that that's how I'm going to mature. I know that that's how I'm going to take the next step in my journey. I've been there. All of those planks are my planks. I'm not standing here telling you you need to get rid of that plank, you need to get rid of that plank. I'm saying I needed to get rid of those planks. I stayed out of community quite often inside my own soul because I was scared. You know what planks do? They defend you. That's the heart of it. You have planks because you think you have to protect yourself. Pure and simple. You put those planks up, because you don't want to be hurt by someone else. So I had those planks, and I told myself they were the wise thing to do, because getting hurt sucks. But as Christians, God tells us to get rid of those planks. Why? Because we stop being our own defender. Because we start to recognize that Christ is our defender. We start to recognize that I can be vulnerable, I can be open, I can be weak because of my weakness, He's my strength. I start to recognize that I don't need to boast about how good I am. My life is about boasting about how good He is. I'm not about defending myself. I'm not about fighting for myself. I'm about being in my place, supporting and helping other people with plankless vision so that we can all grow up. I will subject myself to other people poking my eyes out in order to get rid of those specks that continue to cloud my vision and stop me from being in community. Lyft has always been known. We get so many reports of of people saying, hey, it's so warm, it's so friendly. And that's something we want to keep. And as I was thinking about it, I started to realise that the only way we keep this is that if we talk about how hard it is to sometimes be in community. And my prayer is that you learn this. This morning as we are coming to a close, get the band up, please. I started to realize that the way that we treat one another is often how we treat God. I started to realize that the planks I had towards people are the planks that I had towards God. Why God calls us in the community is because it reveals stuff that is in my soul. And so I carry it the illusion of transparency with God. I carried fundamental attribution error with God. I carried the confirmation bias with God. When I was a younger Christian, I didn't think that God was that good and He was able to cater for my needs. And so I started to look after myself. And then when things went wrong, I was like, God knew I needed that. And then it confirmed in my heart, God, maybe He isn't that good. Living with God, we said that loving God is easy. Not always. When the situation that you are in doesn't turn out the way that you want, suddenly God isn't that good anymore, is He? When the situation that you are in turns out disastrous and you're hurt, you are feeling as though you're rejected or abandoned or or broken, suddenly God doesn't look so gracious anymore, does He? And we hold these planks up in front of our eyes and we say, God, I'm holding you at arm's distance. I did that. There was a situation in my life that, that so wrecked my heart that I went to God and said, I don't know if I can believe you anymore. I said that. I went that way because the situation had confirmed my suspicions that maybe God isn't as good or He isn't as sovereign as I thought He was. It took me a while to work things out that those were my perceptions and not the truth. We sang this morning, your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. It was a pain for me to sing those words once in my life. And sometimes it still is when the situation doesn't work out the way that I want it to. Because when I'm trying to remember the truth, it means that I have to subject myself to that truth. And sometimes it's hard, but that's the only way we find true joy. So this morning, if you're in a place where you're wanting to trust God, but you're struggling to trust God, if you're in a place where, where, where you've got these planks that are stopping you from coming close to God, if you're in a place where Jesus isn't your Lord and Savior because you don't know if you really trust Him, but you want to, Can I invite you to say this prayer together with me? Every eye closed, every head bowed. Repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I invite you into my life. Be my Lord and my Saviour. I don't want to do life by myself. I want you in my life. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift church Perth. That will give you all the up to date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.